0: welcome everyone dr mercola helping you take control of your health and today we are joined by honored guest dr paul merrick um i'm sure many of you know who he is but i will give you a brief summary in case you don't uh he is the merrick of the merrick protocol which he popularized which is a relatively low dose of intravenous vitamin c and we'll discuss some of the reasons why it was so low dose because most clinicians in the field are using much higher doses but um this is he is a one of the, he's a world class uh, intensive care physician, uh, incredibly well published, and I think he's mo- and is the founder of the FLCC, which is the Frontline COVID Critical Care, uh, phys- group of physicians who probably who published probably one of the most rigorous, comprehensive protocols for treating not only COVID but long COVID. So it's a really great honor and privilege to connect with Dr. Merrick today. Uh, this isn't the first time, though. I've tried to connect. I wanted to go into it a little, a little bit too, because I think it's a illustrative of the challenges that we have. And you know, once a, once you're a physician and you understand the truth, you be tend to become vilified and discredited, and that is the general perception in the public and dr merrick went through this in spades i've certainly been a veteran of this too and so much so that the first two times i attempted to interview dr merrick he refused me and i suspect it was because of this discrediting but i'm so delighted and honored now that we can have this dialogue and share it with you because it's really important important part and there's a lot of things we're going to talk about today but i just want to maybe kind of delve into this in, in a bit and um I'm sure you had your reasons, but my suspicion is in the conclusion of it, because you're not the only person that, you know, research scientist or, you know, prominent clinician that I've attempted to interview and really dive deep into their work and expose it to the public that has refused to interview with me. And I suspect that the the, the central theme is pretty similar in that they they were, they didn't really dive deep into what was going on. So I'm wondering if you could just share your thoughts on on this.
1: Yeah, so I I do apologize for refusing to speak with you. It wasn't uh, an intentional personal thing. I think it was at a time that, you know, I was still digesting what was happening. um, And I was unsure, you know, I didn't realize how important you are in uh, in telling the truth and standing up for the truth. And, you know, so I I was a little bit protective, but I think we have spoken subsequently. We have subsequently met. And obviously, you know, you're one of my heroes because you stand up for the truth. And obviously, you've known about the dishonesty, the deceit, the deception um, for much longer than I have. You know, I had swallowed the Kool Aid. I was a tenured professor of medicine. I was the only one tenured in my department, in fact. And so I believed you know the medical literature i believe the narrative i believe what i taught and you 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 can understand how disturbing it is to to one's very core when you actually discover that what you've been teaching and what you've been promoting is based on lies falsehood and and deception fortunately in the icu and i think my good friend pierre would attest to this most of what we did is based on Understanding human physiology, so we were less influenced by the evilness of big pharma, big hospitals, uh, and, and their collaborators. You, obviously, until COVID came around, you know, prior to you know, COVID has changed the world, and you know, up until then, we had pretty much um, therapeutic freedom. You know, patients were critically ill; they were dying, and doctors did what they do. They, at the bedside, they do what they can to save the patient's life. And that was pre-COVID. And then obviously COVID came around and changed that completely. Indeed, as you know, um, we had a really successful protocol for treating COVID uh, in the hospital. That's how we really started, you know, the Math Plus protocol. And so we know it was effective. My results were better than any of my colleagues. But what happened is the hospital decided, you know, to to basically outlaw what I was doing. I was using safe, FDA-approved drugs, which have been shown to be effective for COVID. And the hospital I worked at, Centora Healthcare System, basically publicly made a statement that the pharmacy would no longer dispense the medications that I had used which was safe and effective to treat COVID. And that basically all I was left with was remdesivir. And as we know, remdesivir was, the use of remdesivir was halted for Ebola just because it was shown to be a toxic drug that killed people. We know that Gilead and the NIH and Fauci cheated in the, I mean, they committed scientific fraud Uh, in the conduction of the remdesivir study. So it will be interesting because we're going to talk about the charges against me against scientific fraud. But they committed out-and-out scientific fraud, and we can go into it. And so we know, according to WHO data, this is publicly available data, remdesivir increases the risk of a patient developing renal failure 20-fold, and we know it increases your risk of dying. So you can understand the situation that I was in. I was the director of the ICU. I'd run the ICU for 15 years. And now I was told I can't use safe and effective drugs to treat my patients. Rather, I must use a toxic drug for which the hospital is um, gets an additional bonus. And so that was a big awakening for me and it basically speaks to the depth the breadth of corruption and so basically you know the healthcare care system is not geared it's not patient geared or healthcare care geared or geared to to enlighten patients improve their health improve their lifespan you know make them happy improve their general health the system is designed to make money Simple as, as that. Make money for big pharma, make money for the hospitals in the system, and therefore, you know, empower the NIH. So that's a brief um, overview of the, this, this journey that I've traveled. And as you say, they have persecuted me professionally, personally. Their goal was to take me down and destroy my career they were somewhat successful in ending my clinical career, but as you know, I'm not going to give up and I will never give up because you have to fight for truth and honesty. And I think now I have a much bigger role because, you know, I and you and many of us have revealed the the deceit of the system and we need to empower patients and healthcare providers to do what our Hippocratic duty is is to help patients. That's what we're here to do.
0: Absolutely. So you mentioned and referenced your uh, math protocol as a combination of drugs, but I would tend to disagree with that because two of those uh, ingredients are actually vitamins. Uh, So the math, for those who are on a math plus protocol, for those who aren't familiar with it, is the M is methylprednisolone, the A is ascorbic acid, the T is thiamine or vitamin B1, H is heparin, and the plus are some other drugs that you can elaborate on, but that you revise it and continue to revise it, I'm assuming. So I'm just curious as to, I mean, the fact that you integrated two powerfully important nutrients into the cyst, into the protocol and got amazing results with it. I, I want you to discuss the results because they were really pretty astounding. You know, a, a sepsis is a, is a major cause of death in the world. Many people don't appreciate it. And the protocol, I believe, was able to knock this the 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 death rate down by eighty percent. So I'm cuir- particularly curious as to what contributed to your open mind to using integrating these nutrients, and you know, why did you why did you why did you do that? I mean, because you clearly had some uh, commitment to seeking the truth and finding out what really worked, not some drug-driven propaganda.
1: Yeah, so I'll tell you how it started. So, you know, MathPlus, which was for COVID, was an extension of our HAT protocol for sepsis. And HAT stands for hydrocortisone, uh, ascorbic acid, and thiamine. And so, you know, how did this start? You know, I'm a bedside clinician. And, you know, as Osler said, you learn medicine at the bedside. And the question is why? Because that's where the patient is. The patient's not in a lecture room or, or in an auditorium or at the end of Zoom. So that's where some of the most important discoveries are made, at the bedside. So what happened was this goes back to about January 2016. I had a patient who had overwhelming sepsis. I think she was in her 50s. She had biliary sepsis. She arrived in the ICU. She, was, she became intubated. She was in renal failure. She was in multiple doses of presses. And as a doctor, I knew she was going to die. I mean, you just can see it. She was on massive doses of presses. And I and you know, when you're at the bedside, you, you have a duty to the patient. You know, the doctor always thinks, What can I do to help this patient? You know, is there a rabbit that I can pull out of the hat to help her? And it just so happened, I had read some work on vitamin C um by, by Dr. Fowler. Um, you know, in enrichment. And I was really impressed by his work. And I did some reading and he had done a preliminary study looking at vitamin C and sepsis. And I thought, you know what? Why don't I try it? You know, it's, a, it's available in the hospital. It's FDA approved. I called my pharmacist. We had vitamin C. I told them what I wanted to do. I explained to the family what we were going to do. And so I decided to use vitamin C. I was unclear about what dose to use. So you talk about the dose because I never used it before. So I looked at Dr. Fowler's study, and in his paper, he used two different doses, 50 milligrams per kilogram per day and 200. So not knowing any better, I thought, well, I'll go halfway. So we started off on 100 milligrams per kilogram per day, which worked out about 1.5 grams six-hourly. And I thought, you know what, vitamin C is anti-inflammatory. I was always very impressed with hydrocortisone for sepsis. And more recently, like a week ago, we now have a paper proving the life-saving benefit of hydrocortisone in pneumonia. So you know, this wasn't a something I'd sucked out of thin air. And then I added thiamine because of its multiple beneficial effects. So At first, I thought it may protect against um, oxalosis with um, vitamin C, but, you know, that wasn't true. But thiamine actually has important effects in um, intermediary metabolism, mitochondrial function, um, energy metabolism. And patients with sepsis are often... Both vitamin C deficient. In fact, they're all vitamin C deficient, as well as thiamine deficient. So that was the initial rationale for this. And, you know, I thought, well, what do we have to lose? I, I was convinced the next morning when I came to work, she would not be with us. And I can tell you, I was completely dumbfounded and stunned. The next morning, she was sitting up in bed. She was off oppressor agents. She got extubated. Her kidney function had improved. And she left the ICU three days later. I was stunned. Our nurses were stunned. The residents were stunned. they had never seen such a thing. This is a woman who we knew was going to die. And she walked out of the hospital. She walked out of the hospital. So, you know, when you see something like this, you say, wow, wow. Maybe there was just a fluke. It was just a lucky thing. So I did it again and again and again. And exactly the same thing happened. So we started this as a protocol in our ICU. And this was endorsed by our nurses because they could see the dramatic effect. I mean, the nurses tell the truth. They're the ones at the bedside. And they they could, you know, they saw their patients came off presses very quickly. They came off the ventilator. And they they were my biggest supporters, although the hospital tried to um, the shenanigans trying to silence them, as we'll see. And at one point I thought about doing a randomized study and I discussed it with my nurses who said it was, it was immoral and unethical to do such a thing because how, we have a treatment that saves lives and now you want to randomize patients to placebo. How's that ethical? So they actually dissuaded me from doing a randomized study. So that's why, you know, we continue to do what we did. And, you know, we published our prospective observational study. And, you know, what we did is we compared our data to retrospective data. We used the same selection criteria and we showed a, a significant reduction in mortality from about 40% in ICU to 8%. So these were patients who met certain criteria who were vasopressor dependent means they required blood pressure medication to support their blood pressure. These are people at high risk of dying. We showed this dramatic reduction in mortality. And so at the beginning, you know, I was a hero at the hospital. They they thought that this was the most wonderful thing. They supported me, they endorsed me, and the dean supported me. So, you know, at that point, I was a hero. But with time, as the, um, you know, the media and the um, forces that be started playing out, I became less and less and less popular to the point, obviously, as I told you, when it came to COVID, um, I was a pariah um, and they wanted to destroy me. And so there is some interesting stories associated with this. And I had really forgotten. So at that time, you know, in the the early or late uh, 2017, 18, sepsis was a big deal in hospitals. And it was used as one of the indicators of the quality of hospital care. And CMS had quality indicators. So so hospital sepsis mortality was, was a big deal. And so there was a company called Truven, which then became, I think, IBM Watson, and then became some other company, which basically contracted with CMS to report hospital data. So this is completely independent of me. And so what happened is they actually provided the CEO of the hospital with the hospital mortality data. And at that time, the CEO was of this CEO. Not the subsequent one, was a very nice man. He was communicative with me. He was respectful of me. He was respectful of what we were doing. He was a kind man. Obviously, that's why he didn't stay there too long, but he actually provided me with the data. So, this was independent data from a, a, a data analytics company that showed that since I had introduced the protocol in the hospital and mainly in our icu the hospital mortality from sepsis fell from 20 percent to eight percent and so that's independent data you know verifying um you know the effects of of this intervention um, but obviously you know after that things uh, turned um, pretty bad and um
0: pretty- before, before we go there let me just hold you on for a moment because I had a few questions with respect to the actual intervention that you'd established, which I think, you know, you're a pioneer and you've established this in in the conventional medical literature. You're an astute researcher with respect to reviewing the scientific uh, literature to have validation and support for your clinical recommendations. So, you know, you initially started at 1.5 1.5 grams every six hours of the vitamin C, and I'm wondering two things. One, if your if your subsequent review of literature and clinical experience has supported a higher intervention, um, and secondly, if you, uh, with your understanding of the, the medical science, what do you believe is the mechanism for vitamin C or ascorbic acid being useful in sepsis?
1: Yeah. So those are really two, <laughs> two really good questions. So I'm say the first was, you know, when we did this, we were somewhat naive and we, we, we didn't put all the dots together. So the actuality is when patients came into the hospital, we treated them pretty quickly, which makes sense. You know, if you septic, it's a time sensitive disease we know time to antibiotics is critical. So what we did is we treated these patients initially when they first arrived in the ICU. So the very first patient, I treated her within an hour or two of being in the ICU. And subsequently, we did the same thing. And we even actually moved it to the emergency room. So patients who were septic, in whom we were consulted to see in the emergency room, you know, we treated them immediately because... You know, that made sense. You know, give them antibiotics, give them, give them vitamin C. So the mistake we made was when we wrote up the paper, we didn't really put together this time sensitive issue. So we said patients were treated within 24 hours. But you know, that's what we wrote, and that's what we thought. It's only subsequently that I realized how time sensitive this really is. In reality, our patients were treated. Within six hours? And I think this becomes a fundamental question because um, I know there have been studies that have reproduced what we did, and all of these studies gave the vitamin C in the dose we used within 10 hours. Then there are many studies that use the same dose but gave patients the vitamin C days later. So, you know, the biggest study published in a New England Journal, which tried to, you know, invalidate our data and make us look, you know, really bad. You know, what we know is we don't know the, the time to the first dose. It's probably in excess of 18 hours. And in fact, many patients were transferred from one hospital to another hospital. So they were in one ICU, They were admitted there, deemed to be too sick, transferred to another hospital in their ICU. So it was days before they were treated. And in addition, our patients were medical patients, which is really important because surgical sepsis is a surgical disease largely. So in this large, you know, randomized study, which so-called, you know, Disproved our paper, the time to initiation of therapy was exceedingly long. Most patients more than twenty four hours. Many were surgical patients, and the investigators had previously viciously attacked me viciously at a in fact, in an open meeting, they had implicated that I was a snake oil doctor at a meeting in Toronto. <laughs> they had viciously, attacked me so they were out
0: you you were making loads of money for the for the companies that were selling ascorbic acid which is almost free oh yes i was
1: i was i was um financially empowering myself and and big pharma and the hospital by by selling this expensive drug which is obviously the issue is that as we know and as you know this is a war on repurposed drugs and they will do whatever they can um so, you know when you look at the data, it seems that if it's given early, that it works. And so I did somewhat of, of of a you know of a dose finding study with our initial patients just based on the variation, according to what the pharmacy did. And it seemed like one point five grams. if given early makes a difference. The question now, and this is, this is an important question, and that's why we've changed our protocol. If it's given after 6 to 10 or 12 hours, I think you need a higher dose. Um, and so, you know, we need better dose-finding studies. You know, we know it works. So how does it work? Well, we know many patients. So firstly, vitamin C shouldn't be called a vitamin C. It should be called a stress hormone. Because all animals on this planet, except for humans and guinea pigs, make vitamin C when stressed. It's made predominantly by the liver uh, and as well as the kidney. And it's an essential stress hormone. It has multiple modes of action. Um, You know, it's very important for sepsis. It's very important for stress. As I said, it's a stress hormone. Um, so it's a po- powerful antioxidant. It, it's required for the synthesis as a cofactor of many many enzymes and proteins. It's imp- it's really vital for the immune system. It's important for white cells to to function to make interferon. Um, so it has a, it has a a host of really important actions. Unfortunately humans have evolutionary lost the ability to make vitamin C. And so when patients are septic, they have exceedingly low vitamin C levels. And animal models show what when you replace the vitamin C, it improves outcome. So this is not rocket science. Vitamin C is essential as a stress hormone. It's an essential antioxidant and sepsis is a Potent prooxidant. It's important for the immune system. It's important for the synthesis of catecholamines. It's essential for tissue repair. So it just makes sense that it would be beneficial in sepsis. Um, so you ask a good question. Is so, you know, I think because most people criticize this about the dose we used and. The answer is, you know, I'm not sure to be to be honest. I think if given early, 1.5 grams six hourly is fine, maybe two grams. And you know, Dr. Corey has done work in his ICU and he found exactly the same thing: that that when there's a delay in the initiation of vitamin C, the the, the mortality benefit disappears. Now, the question obviously is if you give it later can you use a higher dose? And that's what we're now suggesting that you know if you w- miss that window of opportunity, you probably need to use a higher dose. What the optimal dose is, I'm not sure. And the reason I had some reservation is that in really in high doses, paradoxically, vitamin C can act as a pro-oxidant, particularly when there's uh, free metals and free iron. And with sepsis, you do get release of Of ferritin and iron. So that that was our caution. Um, But you're absolutely correct. You know, I I think we need to do more research to give you the answer. Um, And and there's
0: also the issue of the oxalate maybe metabolized to oxalic acid, which is not a good thing at high doses.
1: Yes. So the optimal dose, we don't know. I still think if given early, you know, 1.5 or 2 grams Q6 is probably optimal. Um, it's what would we would suggest. And there are studies, you know, there there was a randomized study done in Taiwan. They couldn't get it published because the results were so striking, and they gave it within two hours, and the mortality reduction was completely off 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 the charts. So um, I think there's a relationship between time and dose. And you know what? Like most things in medicine. You know, we don't know all the answers, and the way you answer it is by asking questions and studying it and looking for answers.
0: Thank you so much for indulging in my curiosity and for the curiosity of many as to the historical perspective of why, how the the uh, mayor Protocol came to be. So from there, I think now that we've established that, we can review what's happened to you as a result of implementing this, because it's pretty interesting not surprising but interesting certainly that uh what's happened uh, you actually I, I i i don't really have the full update now because i know that the your board certification which i believe is the american board of internal medicine uh moved to remove your certification when and that's you know so what who cares if you're certified from them well it's a big deal because you're once you lose that certification, you're not eligible for seeing patients, having, having patients that you see have their insurance cover your services. And many institutions, hospitals and companies require that certification to work. So it, it is a job buster, essentially, if you lose it, uh, almost like you're losing your license. It's almost comparable uh in many cases, so I wonder what the status of that is, and then maybe you can discuss what happened in losing your position you in you have something I think you popularized which is sham peer review where yeah. they supposedly your peers uh go through the process of removing you with essentially no um legal recourse so why why don't you give us an update as to what's happened to you as a result of if your experience with this protocol. Yeah.
1: So, you know, obviously math plus then became an expen- extension of, of hat therapy. You know, this was 2020. Uh, at that time the NIH, the CDC and WHO said there's no treatment for the hospitalized patient with COVID which is completely absurd. How can a doctor not treat a patient? So we came up with the meth protocol. It made most sense. We knew this was a profound inflammatory disease and a clotting disease. So as you said, we added methylpredilisone, ascorbic acid, thiamine, uh to the and heparin to this protocol we then the plus became a number of other things including melatonin and you know what we demonstrated was um, a reduction in mortality and i had data from my own hospital showing the reduction in mortality and so the first uh, assault against me came when you know peer myself and Jose, we wrote a review paper on Math Plus. It was a review paper. It wasn't basically a a, a a observational study. We just reviewed the rationale for Math Plus, and in it, in a small part of it, I quoted the hospital mortality, just one line, and which was eight point six percent at that time. And where did I get the data? So I should say that. The hospital mortality worldwide at that point was 20 percent and we've subsequently published data in peer review journal showing the average hospital mortality for COVID was 20 percent and so the ceo of the hospital sorry cmo let me say that again the chief medical officer of the hospital personally gave me the data of the hospital mortality at Norfolk General. So this was Dr. Michael Hooper. He personally gave me the data. He told me that, and this was personally, he gave me the data that the hospital mortality was 8.6%. And so that was the data at that time. So as a very small part of this paper, it was included in one of the tables. You know, we said the hospital mortality was 8.6%. Anyway, in Healthcare System and Dr. Hooper, basically, they complained to the medical school that I had made up the data, I had fabricated the data. Dr. Hooper didn't give me the data; this was completely fabricated. And so, they reported this to the medical school. There was a big inquiry. In the event, in the end, the hospital actually, the medical school agreed with me, and they did agree that maybe what we should do is just add an addendum that. The mortality, as I had quoted, was at that particular time, which was accurate. And obviously with time, as you know, because that was sensitive, the mortality increased to like 10%, but still it was substantially less than the world average. Anyway, what happened is the hospital put pressure on the journal, the Journal of Intensive Care Medicine, and they forced them to retract my paper or our paper because of scientific fraud and misconduct. And so the journal followed what they said. And clearly there were other extraneous or forces acting with the hospital, but they retracted our paper, Journal of Intensive Care Medicine, which reliably, faithfully, honestly reflected the truth. And so that was really the first major attack on me personally and on Uh, the math protocol, and uh, against what we were doing. I should add that this wasn't my first run-in with the health system. They had actually accused me of scientific misconduct a few months previously. They had accused me of plagiarizing an IRB protocol. Have you ever heard of such a thing? So I applied to the IRB for a protocol to study our COVID data, and Centauri... What is the the IRB? The IRB is Institutional Review Board. So whenever you do a study looking at human data, uh, it's standard across the U.S. and the world. You have to provide your protocol to the Institutional Review Board, which looks at the data, makes sure they satisfies certain criteria and give you permission. So the hospital, believe it or not, I don't think this has ever happened before, accused me of plagiarizing a ILB protocol. So they were after me. They were after me because I had shown that my protocol or our protocol worked to save lives and that I was having much better outcomes than their incompetent doctors. So they were going after me. So obviously that paper was retracted, which I think was fraudulent, it was illegal, it was immoral, because what we had in the paper was the truth. But I think this emphasizes the power that the hospital systems have and the these other forces. And so then, as I said, um, you know, when it came to, to math plus, I was showing good outcomes, the hospital. Uh, then try to stop me using this protocol, as I said. So I was put in this position that all I could use was remdesivir. So uh, the first week I went to work after this ban, I had seven patients with COVID and all seven died because I was basically put in a position that I wasn't able to treat my patients. So, uh, you know, I spoke to my, my legal advice, and they said, well, I should try and sue to allow them to, uh, reinstate my protocol, get temporary injunction to allow me to practice. So we went to court, and the very day I went to court, uh, a letter arrived on my office basically accusing me of a whole host of crimes. Um, at that time, I didn't know what it is. It's called sham peer review. So what hospitals do to get rid of doctors that are inconvenient to them, or want to tell the truth, is they basically falsify a number of accusations. And they accused me of seven most outrageous things, including I was forcing nurses to give patients medications to which they were allergic. Can you imagine something as outrageous as that? And I think you would have to be completely. Um, um, moronic to actually think that a doctor could ever do such a thing. So they claimed I was forcing nurses to put down medications down the NG tube. I mean, these were outrageous accusations and there was no documentation. There was no um, names or patient records or anything to support these outrageous claims. And based on these outrageous claims, they suspended my hospital privileges immediately. So I was found guilty. There was no um, due process. I wasn't allowed legal representation. They basically stopped me practicing medicine based on these false accusations. And I, I, I had that time to know what was going on, but I recognized it. subsequently it's a process called sham peer review, where Hospitals invent accusations against doctors. And the system is such that because you don't have um, due process, you found guilty, you assume to be guilty, you can lose your license and your privileges, and they get away with it and you're not allowed legal um, support. So I then went to a hearing, which was indeed a, uh, a kangaroo court. Um, It was me. I wasn't allowed legal representation with about 25 hostile people. And so they knew the previous charges were completely bogus. So they did what sham peer review does is they changed the focus. So they didn't focus on the previous terrible crimes that I had committed. But now they basically said I was a horrible individual. I was promoting an atmosphere of retaliation, distrust. Uh, I had angered people. I had annoyed people. Uh, I was just an awful human being, which was somewhat surprising to me because I'd never had a patient complaint in my entire clinical career ever, a single patient complaint. I'd never had a complaint from a medical student. I'd never had a complaint from a resident. I had never had a complaint from a nurse. All my evaluations were glowing. So suddenly I was this awful, horrendous human being that was creating distrust in the, in the hospital. And so they went out of the way to not, to not reinstate my privileges. They reported me to the National Practitioner Data Bank. And so when you get reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank, your name is there forever. And it makes it almost impossible to get a license again in any state. So, the hospital essentially ended my career based on fraud, falsification of data, um, deceit, dishonesty, unethical behavior. They essentially ended my career. And so here I was, and I had data to prove it that in my ICU under my care, the mortality in my hands was at least half of that of my colleagues. That was irrelevant. They had to get rid of me because I was challenging the system. And so essentially, I was forced to resign because um, they have enormous power and influence. Um, the medical school did not support me and collaborated with me. So that essentially ended my career. But I suppose there is another piece to this awful saga. So, you know, after resigning in March uh, 2022, um, there was an internet troll who basically claimed that my uh, vitamin C study was a fraud. So basically, he sent a letter to CHEST where the journal was published. And basically, I was told we have received a message raising concern about the research reported in the CHEST article for which you are-
0: That CHEST article was published in 2017 or five years prior to that.
1: Yes. So this is five years ago. I mean, just coincidentally, you know, that no one had raised any objections. It was published in 2017- now suddenly, in 2022, when I'm questioning you know the whole narrative, um, the scientific validity of my paper is questioned. And the journal says, "You know, I must take this allegation seriously." And the allegation was within five minutes of reading the study, it became overwhelmingly clear that indeed research fraud was committed and the data was fabricated. There's simply no other explanation for this. Than fraud, so this person um, wrote to the journal and accused me of of scientific fraud, uh, which was completely uh, absurd. So I uh, responded to the journal very very professionally. I actually still had my data. I provided the data. I provided the. Um, Iob approval, Institutional Review Board, so the protocol was approved both by my medical school as well as the healthcare system. And so, I provided all the data. So, in September of 22, I received a letter from them which said, after a thorough review of the statistical methods and facts of the case, no further action will be taken in response to these allegations. So, chest cleared me of these allegations. However, it goes on. However, during the course of our investigation, we received a new allegation. So there were now new allegations regarding the methodology in our paper, which they said would violate the journal's ethical policies, if true. And basically what they said is review of the institution's records yielded a discrepancy in the number of patients meeting the inclusion and exclusion criteria. So what they were now claiming, so this was an additional claim after the initial claim was dismissed, basically saying that I had cherry-picked the patients, I had manipulated the data. And there's only one place that this accusation could have come from, only one source, so Chess did not reveal the source of the allegation and have never done so. But, you know, you put two and two together, and there's absolutely no question of doubt where this allegation came from. And this allegation came from Centaura Healthcare System, because they could, in some fashion, put together the data. So there's no question that the chief medical officer, Dr. Michael Hooper, and Centaura had again wanted to discredit me, disprove me. I mean, this is like the third time now they're going after me and raised this issue with chest. So, again, this went on from, you know, September to 2022. Um, I, I was absolutely convinced that much like the Journal of Internal Care Medicine, the editor would not show um, scientific Integrity, and would have our paper retracted. However, I was really surprised in that a few days ago. So this is April the third. I actually received a letter from Chest, in which they basically said they couldn't. They found insufficient evidence to confirm all of these allegations. So essentially, we were vindicated. What they what they did want us to do was to make two small changes to the methods section. So, the uh, results stayed the same. the conclusion stayed the same. And basically, they just wanted a clarification in the methods section. It's basically stating one that the patients, which I said were consecutive were not consecutive. And I think in anyone who under that who under takes a clinical trial will know it's almost impossible to enroll in consecutive patients. Even if you have full-time study investigators, it's really an impossibility. And even in the best-designed randomized controlled trials, you know, the enrollment rate is 20 to 25 to 30%. So they had to say something. So it's really inconsequential because, as they said, it, it really didn't change the outcome. And then they wanted to say that, you know, we said we treated patients with one gram every six hours. And they wanted to say we targeted one gram every six hours, which, which again just means that although that was our goal, sometimes the pharmacy didn't, you know, comply exactly within six hours. So these were really inconsequential changes. So in a way, they, they validated our study. They vindicated me. They vindicated the protocol. And so I was really pleased that Chest actually drew a, a, a line in the sand and said, you know what, we're going to look at the data, we're going to look at the science, and we're going to stand for the truth. So although did dragged their heels and weren't that responsive, I'm really appreciative to Chest and the editor for, you know, standing up for the truth. Unlike the previous editor who basically committed fraud because he allowed our paper to be withdrawn based on false allegations. And so that's uh, this um, so awful saga, um, as best I can tell you. So clearly, the healthcare system were targeting me. And I, I think it was the healthcare system and probably their supporters. And just because I went against the narrative, as you know, if you challenge the narrative and show that your treatment is actually more efficacious, safer, and cheaper than that being promoted by the CDC, the NIH, the federal government, you are a enemy of the state. And they were going to do whatever they could to take me down.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that and uh, giving us the update as to the current status. of so them also curious if you'd you'd care to go into some of the personal aspects of this with respect to your health, because not only had you bought the uh, conventional narrative hook, line, and sinker for patient care, but for also your own health care. And I think prior to COVID, you had developed a metabolic illness and suffered with diabetes. And I I just wonder if you could uh, describe your process of understanding that what you were doing wasn't working. And then you embarked on an an intervention, which essentially allowed you to regain metabolic flexibility, lose, I don't know, at least 50 pounds or so. And I I believe are not diabetic at this point, type two diabetes. So uh, if you can expand on your personal health journey as a result of this, this experience. Sure,
1: Joe. So, you know, obviously what happened with COVID is it shone a bright light, on corruption, deceit, and dishonesty, that had been there for decades, 30, 40 years, but none of us had seen. And so once I started looking at protocols to treat COVID patients, um, I discovered that much of what we've been taught at medical school, what of much of what the journals publish is false, fraudulent, and perpetuated by um, big pharma. And diabetes, you know, and metabolic dysfunction is part of that. You know, if you believe the narrative, type two diabetes is a progressive metabolic disease. It will result in complications, cardiac complications. You're going to use, lose your your legs. You're going to have kidney disease, and that the only treatment is basically expensive pharma drugs. That it's a progressive disease, and that is completely false. It's a lie. Um, And this becomes important because it's projected that by the end of this decade, half of the world's population are going to be obese, and over 20 to 25% will have type 2 diabetes. So the implications are enormous. And so the bottom line is type 2 diabetes is a metabolic disease. It's a metabolic disease due to bad lifestyle and really bad eating habits really bad eating habits. So you know us Western people, um, I, I used to follow this. you know we eat all the time, we snack all the time. we be basically become uh, and this is part of the food industry's goal is food is, is basically has adddictins addict, in them. So glucose, processed food, starch becomes an addiction most of us are glucose addicted, and it's in fact more addictive than cocaine. And so it creates this vicious cycle of insulin resistance. If you insulin resistance, it prevents leptin and the other hormones acting on your brain. So you're continually hungry. If you continue hungry, you eat more. It causes more insulin resistance. So it causes this, this vicious cycle of overeating carbohydrates. So let's be clear processed food and carbohydrates are toxins to the body. There is no requirement that the human has to eat carbohydrates. While there are essential proteins and essential fatty acids, they are not essential carbohydrates. And so, you know, this is the, um, the myth that's p- p- propagated of, you know, low, low, low fat, high carbohydrate. And this was this myth started in the 1960s with Ansel Keys uh, propagating that saturated fat was bad, promoting vegetable oils. And in, so indeed, the the uptake of vegetable oils and carbohydrates went up in, in you know exponentially. And if you go to the stores now, you'll see everything is low carb. And so if it's you know, if it's low, car- sorry, is low fat. It's low fat because fat has been stigmatized. So if it's low fat, it must mean that it's high in carbs and um, it has high carbs and vegetable oils. So, so what I did is I changed my diet. Firstly, I started intermittent fasting, and so I've got to the point now where I eat once a day, and remarkably, I'm not hungry the rest of the day. And I started eating real food, real food, not processed food, uh, not carbohydrates. I've significantly reduced my intake of carbohydrates. I try to avoid carbohydrates. And so by changing my diet and lifestyle, which is a simple thing, and in fact, intermittent fasting is not difficult because once at the beginning, it, it takes a bit of time to get used to, but once you're used to this, you, you don't have this terrible hunger. It's easy to do. Uh, and there are lots of ways of doing it. So I actually am now off my diabetes medicine. My fasting glucose is down to 100, where it used to be like 150 or 160. My hemoglobin A1c, the probably the best marker of diabetes, went from 7.1 to 5.6. So, you know, I've demonstrated personally that if you change your lifestyle, eat, you know, eat a diet that that we were designed to eat, you know, the diet of uh, Paleolithic people. You know, we, we weren't made to eat five or six times a day. Many Western people spend 14 hours a day eating. And what do they eat? They eat processed foods and foods high in carbohydrate. So if you go back to basics, to, you know, the way our body was designed, you eat fewer meals with nutrient-dense food, not processed food. Probably the worst food on the planet is breakfast cereal, which is nothing more than sugar and processed carbohydrate, which is fed to our children. Um, It's a toxin. And so through this journey, you know, I have changed my lifestyle. I've changed the way I eat. And, um, you know, hopefully we can help other people. And then what I also discovered is that there is an ancient Chinese herb. It's called berberine. It's been used for 3,000 years, which is probably the most effective diabetic medication there is. It's very effective. And this has been demonstrated in really good, well-designed trials. The reason most people don't know about it is you can't patent berberine can't patent it. So no one can make money from selling berberine. So therefore there's no financial incentive in promoting it. So um, it's cheap. It's over the counter. You can get it on the internet. So, you know, the combination of changing my diet, changing what I eat, changing how I eat, taking berberine, I've basically um, cured my diabetes. And, you know, speaking to many people, there are many people that have followed this path. So again, it attests to the deceit and dishonesty of the um, medical system in, that they benefit from people being chronically ill, from chronically taking medications, because that's what generates the income. So actually, I, you know for the healthcare system, I've saved enormous money because you know you spend less money on food and no money on medication, and I'm not going to develop, hopefully touch wood, all these diabetic complications.
0: Well, congratulations on your, your program and reversing your uh, diabetes. It's a, it's a pretty profoundly impressive story. I I used to feel, I agree with 90, 95% of what you said, but and used to agree with everything, but uh, for three years, I've refined that, I think with some important components that I think would be useful to share on some of the points that you mentioned. And you mentioned that there's, That Well, two big points uh, is that there are essential fatty acids, and I'm actually in the process of writing a paper, we would be submitted to Nutrient as a review for omega-6 fats, uh, and I'm pretty convinced that that's a misnomer, that the the data does not support that omega-6 are essential fats. Uh, It was an aberration that was done over 100 years ago, this study was published, and it's just persisted in the literature, so I don't believe they are essential. It's sort of a mood issue because it's impossible, virtually impossible, to not get omega six fat if you're eating food. But the central core of what you said, and it is the time restricted eating, massively important, massively important. And the the the, the, the complication though is that if, if you ha- have a situation like we were, were overweight and had fluorid diabetes it's going to work phenomenal. And, and restricting carbs is really, really helpful, but it's a short-term intervention. It's kind of like how vitamin C or ascorbic acid is really useful for treating sepsis, but you don't want to give someone vitamin C <laughs> a gram, two grams every six hours for the rest of their life. No, no, it's a short-term intervention. And when you treat the problem, then you ship. So th- the, the issue is, is that, uh, as I see it, that you don't really want to Restrict the time of eating to one meal a day, like you're doing now. You really want to per, certainly less than twelve hours. But once you've achieved metabolic flexibility, as you have, you want to extend the eating window to no less than four hours a day. And the older you are, the more important this become To probably range between six and twelve hours a day, and no, not the same every day to mix it up to get a little bit variety and variability in there. Yes, yeah, so interrupt.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. So you know, originally. I, I did eat one meal a day, I've now increased the window. So I agree with you. So, you know, once I achieve what I achieve, I now
0: increase the window to about four to six hours. So I do- You may even want to go more than that too. I mean, I would not go below four to six hours for sure. And the other thing is that the carbohydrates you mentioned, carbohydrates are not essential. There's no RDA for requirements. And that is true. Your body can live without carbohydrates, but they can't live well. Um, Assuming you're metabolically flexible, if you're if you're not getting enough carbohydrates, your body absolutely there, there is a requirement for it. Your body, if you don't eat it, your body's going to make it. The way it makes it is it liberates a hormone, which you know in high doses is a problem. It's called cortisol, uh, and that can in- lead to increased inflammation. And that cortisol causes your liver to in- embark on a process called glucone- gluconeogenesis, which makes gl- glucose. So. That but a second the, the complication of having your body liberate cortisol is you have inflammation and that is not good, so you you really want a certain you a, a, a baseline of carbohydrates. In fact, I'm embracing this so much I have about two to three hundred grams a day. You know, and, fr, and the, from healthy carbs that the central core, which you said is true, you don't want to avoid. You don't want to have any any processed foods, and this includes processed sugar. The culprit that I think is mistakenly targeted is carbohydrates, but it's very specific. It's processed sugar. Typically, in the we haven't had it since 1970. I mean, it never existed before 1970, which is high fructose corn syrup. And why? Because that is not just sugar. It's starch from the corn that is not filtered out in the high fructose corn syrup. It's not mentioned in the label of ingredients. And it goes as undigested starch it gets, it gets digested and broken. It isn't broken down. The back is fuel for the bacteria in your colon and that the, the bacteria produce endotoxin. It's just a nightmare mess into the, into the inflammation. So you can have healthy carbs, primarily from fruit, primarily from fruit, healthy fruits, uh, but and raw honey, but you don't want any high fructose corn syrup. And, and that I said raw honey because many of the honeys out there are made from high fructose corn syrup. So you have to be really, really careful make sure it's raw, pure honey. So, I think if you do that, it's the refinement that that you transition to once you've regained metabolic flexibility as you have, and many people do are a success with this. But the mistake that I see being made all the time, including the one I made, is to think that low carb for the rest of your life is just the, the best thing out there, and I think you're going to, you're going to long term run into complications with it,
1: yeah, no, I agree. I think that the bottom line is 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 to limit the duration of eating eat within a window you know m- maybe 10 12 hours but i think the most important thing is to eat real food so if it yes. looks like
0: yes food, couldn't agree more if it looks like
1: food is food you know if it comes in a box and has a label and is processed it's certainly not fruit food and as you say i think high fructose corn syrup is toxic you know the fructose yes. gets converted into fat in the liver. It's really toxic. So I think it's just getting back to basics, eating a healthier diet, eating what what is natural. And so, you know, uh, blueberries, strawberries, grapefruits are really healthy fruits that are high in anthracinins. They do have some fructose and glucose, but it's all natural. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't completely avoid Um, starches, it depends upon your degree of of metabolic flexibility. And, you know, what happens is that as you start this journey, you become more metabolic flexible, your body reacts much better to glucose, and you can release insulin. So your insulin sensitivity improves your ability of your pancreas to release insulin improves. So it's, as you say, you, you can be less restrictive in the way you eat.
0: And the life becomes more enjoyable too. Uh, so I wanted to dive now into a question I had. You invited me to speak on one of your podcasts uh, about uh, near infrared. In fact, the way we first met per, uh, in in person was uh, an event in Tampa last year where you were speaking. It was on vitamin C, and you were, we were both uh, speaking. And I introduced. We had dinner, and I introduced you to the uh, red light. Well. Near infrared sauna, and you became intrigued with it so much so that you wanted to see the literature, which is what I really respect about your approach—is that you really want to dive dive deep and understand it from a physical science perspective. So, um, I'm wondering if you actually integrated that into the uh, protocol you have for COVID and uh, treatment of long COVID.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so thank you for that introduction, and so. You know, at the beginning, I was a little bit skeptical, but the reality is, you know, there's an enormous body of science to support this. And so, you know, I think if something is valid, it will be out there. And so if you actually do a Medline search in the National Library of Medicine, you will find over 6,000 publications on photobiomodulation. And it's truly astonishing. And really what it is, is harnessing the power of the sun you know, the sun is there. And I know that you go for a walk in the sun every day. And so absolutely, there's there's enormous data on the curative powers of the sun. And so, you know, in fact, in 1918, during the influenza pandemic, what they did in Boston is they took patients who were in the hospital, they took them outside in the sun, they called this open air therapy, And they showed the mortality decreased from 40% to about 13%. So there's data now going back over 100 years attesting to the power of the sun. So, And obviously, most of the sunshine is near-infrared. And near-infrared has enormous... Enormous health benefits. So what people may not know is near infrared penetrates quite deep through the skin, you know, maybe nine, 10 inches, and it has enormous biological properties. And these, these have been proven. You know, it's anti-inflammatory, it energizes the mitochondrion, um, it improves your metabolic dysfunction. Um, and so it's really important, and you know, there there is a study which looked at people who are sun averse, so some people are absolutely scared of the sun, and what they showed is that if you avoid the sun, you know, religiously, it increases your all-cause mortality, your risk of dying goes up significantly if you risk the sun, So, (laughs) so obviously the answer is get sunshine like you do, And so the benefit is it's free until the big farmer can find a way to um, patent sunshine. And so it's free. And, you know, going for a walk in the sunshine is, is such an important thing. You get exercise. It's good for your mind and body and you get infrared. Now, you know, obviously you live in Florida. So the problem is, you know, people who, who live, you know, in an igloo or near the North Pole, you know, that's not conducive to going outdoors. So, you actually can purchase um, infrared lamps, one in particular that mimics sunshine, and you can, you know, you can expose yourself to near infrared every day, and you do this indoors. And so, that's what I do. So, it's part of my protocol. You know, when I sit working or watching the TV, I exposed myself to near infrared. And so, you know, it's difficult to know what I'm doing has made the most benefit, but it's a package. It's a lifestyle change because obviously Neolithic man walked outdoors. He didn't spend that indoors in a cave and he was exposed to infrared he was exposed to sunlight, he was exposed to blue light during the day. And at night, as you know, light is really bad at nighttime, it switches off your pineal gland and melatonin. So you really want to replicate the way that we've evolved, you know, sunshine during the day, eating sparingly during the day, eating saturated fat. And then at night, you know, you can sit around a campfire, campfire actually makes red light, which is infrared, and it doesn't switch off melatonin. And at night, you want to be careful of switching off your pineal gland. So it's really about getting back to basics. And I think, you know, you are one of the leaders in this this lifestyle change.
0: Thank you. And what, one important component of the near-furred exposure that I really didn't appreciate until recently is that it actually makes 95% of the melatonin in your body and it's produced in the mitochondria, which is exactly and precisely where it should be because that's where most of the oxidative stress is created in, in the electron transport train to produce ATP. So it's a beautiful, beautiful system, but you just got to understand it and get out in the sun whenever you can. And uh, a lot of people are concerned about the danger of premature wrinkling and skin cancer, uh, and uh, skin cancer and sunburn. How could, I, how could I miss sunburn? Well, it turns out that if you avoid all processed foods, which are loaded with linoleic acid or omega 6 because they're so cheap, uh, that is what causes the sunburn and the skin cancer and the wrinkles, it's the excess linoleic acid is being oxidized by ultraviolet radiation in the sunshine that is causing the damage. It's not just the UV, the UV your body needs and can use to make vitamin D, of course. But if you don't have the high doses of linoleic acid embedded in your uh, uh, skin that most people do, then you're not going to get that damage.
1: Absolutely. I agree with you.
0: right. So thank you for that little diversion. And I just would like to end it with uh, to see where you're at personally. You you described the sham peer review process you went through and the uh, hospitals essentially terminating or removing your ability to be, be permanently employed in the conventional medical system. So I'm wondering what you're doing now to put food on the table.
1: Yeah. So that's a good question. So I need less food. So that's a benefit. So basically, you know, my focus now has shifted. You know, I work for the FLCCC, which I founded. And my goal now is to empower patients, empower people and healthcare workers to to a better life, to, you know, treat many of these diseases you know fortunately i have reached retirement age so i do have a little bit of resources and i do get a stipend from flccc for which i'm grateful so you know i manage um you know you don't need a lot to get by you don't need a house with 14 bathrooms you only need one bathroom and one bath and one bedroom and you don't need six cars you know one car is fine
0: so good kitchen got it. Can't forget the good kitchen.
1: <laughs> yeah. So no, I have a good kitchen and I have a good bathroom, and those those are the essentials. And you know, people, you know, you don't need a lot to live by. You know, so in a way, maybe I've become a minimalist. And so you know, I'm happy with what I'm doing. Um, I, I I've seen the light, and you know, my goal is to help as many people as I can. And I think that gives me enormous satisfaction, knowing that I can help people change their lifestyle to improve their health, their happiness, and their well-being.
0: Terrific! So, if people wanted to know more about what FLCC does, can you tell them how to get more information? The places they can access that?
1: Yeah. So, the best is to go to our website, uh, which is flccc.net flccc.net, And there you can download a whole bunch of protocols, you know, how to prevent COVID, how to deal with influenza. Uh, there's a protocol on intermittent fasting, good foods, bad foods. We have the diabetes protocol. And so actually I'm working on a new protocol, which I'm really very excited. It's going to take a little bit, a bit of time to do is the metabolic approach to treating cancer and the enormous number of repurposed drugs that are available to treat cancer. Because much like diabetes, patients with cancer can empower themselves. And so I'll tell you about a remarkable study. Um, You know, cancer is a disease that touches everyone. I'm not sure there's any family that hasn't directly or indirectly. So there was a paper, peer-reviewed paper in a prestigious medical journal um, that was randomized control study. So exactly what the ivory tower people want that looked at three simple interventions to reduce the risk of cancer three. And basically these were vitamin D, your favorite, omega-3 fatty acids and home exercise and not smoking. And they showed that this sim- these simple interventions reduced your risk of cancer by 50%. Isn't that important? And so there are some other things I would add to the protocol. Melatonin actually is very important in in preventing Mm -hmm. cancer. There's really good data that people who have low melatonin levels have much higher risk of cancer, particularly breast cancer, that nighttime workers who have a disturbance of their circadian rhythm are much higher risk of getting cancer. In fact, night shift working is considered a a type 2 carcinogen. So there's simple things you can, people can do to empower themselves to both reduce their risk of getting cancer. And if they have cancer, they can work with their oncologist in, you know, in an integrative um, adjunctive way, which will allow a reduction in the doses of toxic chemotherapeutic drugs. So I think this this is a really exciting area of uh, endeavor.
0: And Dr. Thomas Seyfried from Boston College uh, was sort of a pioneer in that area. He's written books and papers on this, too. I wonder if you're using some of his work.
1: Oh, yes. So his his book was actually the impetus of me going down this path. I mean, his book is brilliant. He he is a true scientist. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm absolutely astonished by the depth and breadth of his research. And, you know, once you read his book, it's perfectly clear. Um, that this is a metabolic disease and it can be controlled by metabolic intervention. So I think he is a pioneer and he's, for me, he's changed the complete direction. And so this is not based on, you know, hearsay or snake oil medicine. This is based on really high level scientific investigation. And so he, he is a pioneer and it really is his work which gave me the springboard Uh, and the encouragement to to follow this path.
0: Good guy, for sure. I've been interviewed him a few times. So, uh, well, congratulations. You keep up the great work and persevering, and I'm glad you transitioned to a place where you can reduce your stress because you're not being harassed by the medical system. And uh, congratulations also for vindicating yourself from the allegations of the control uh, that tried to get your, your paper retracted. So it looks like things are going in the right direction. And I'm really glad for, for that. And uh, so happy that you are now metabolic Flexible will be with us for a few more years because having diabetes and 50 pounds overweight is not a good prescription for living a long life.
1: Yeah. And you know, you say something really important Stress. stress. Um, I, I think people don't uh, appreciate how bad stress is for the body and persistent cortisol levels. And so, you know, I have a a continuous glucose monitor and I can monitor changes in glucose. And when I am stressed, uh, it does a terrible thing to my blood glucose. It doesn't matter what I eat. So I think, you know, people need to develop methods of dealing with stress, you know, um, you know, relaxation techniques, stress mitigation techniques, I think are really important. So part of it is diet, part of it is the sun, part is infrared. But as you say, I think mitigating stress is so important.
0: Well, you keep up the great work and I'm sure we'll talk again soon.